Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of May 13th. Much ado about nothing. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss how an ongoing tug of war between coronavirus and global stimulus has led to remarkable stability in risk asset prices over the course of the past month. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. So Dan, over the past few weeks, we've all seen a lot of stories remarking on the incredible performance of the stock market, particularly when looking at the somewhat bleak economic outlook in the weeks and months ahead. But for all of the speculation and all of the commentary on how great the stock market has been, really risk asset prices, both equities and credit spreads, are effectively unchanged over the past month. Yeah, spreads have been pretty range-bound for the better part of a month now after coming really crashing down from their peaks of about 400 basis points. We've now been stuck in this you know, relatively tight range of 220 to 240 basis points since about mid-April. And I think, like you said, there's kind of a directionless feel to this trading and some uncertainty over what the next move is. And we've talked about it as it being a sort of tug of war, where on one hand you have the virus, which is obviously the most important factor that the market is watching. And every day we are pricing two stories about reopening and potential for you know stay-at-home orders being reintroduced in some jurisdictions and in other jurisdictions, the potential for stay-at-home orders being dropped. And on the other hand, you have quantitative easing where the Fed has been buying an aggressive amount of treasuries, MBS, and just as of yesterday started buying corporate debt. So I think the market is trying to grapple with what the next move is going to be. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's just going to take a long time to sort of figure out with the path of both infection rates and governmental responses to it likely to play out over the long term. I'll just comment on the virus front here that it's looking more and more likely that an intermittent distancing type of scenario is going to have to be the one that takes hold here. Like you said, we're already seeing some countries that eased some restrictions early having to start considering putting those restrictions in after an ensuing increase in infection rates just weeks after dropping those restrictions. And perhaps an increase in infection should have been expected, but the evidence is certainly building that stay-at-home orders of March and April are not likely to be just one-and-done type things. It's going to be a spectrum where we're going in and out of quarantine probably over the course of the next year plus until a vaccine is hopefully discovered and then we can get back to more normal. The key point there is, If intermittent distancing is what's likely the path forward, I don't think that's been priced yet. I think so far the market's sort of been pricing to this expectation that things would go back to normal or very close to it once this initial wave was kind of over and the evidence is building that that's not the case. But despite that, asset prices have been hanging in pretty remarkably, even as 
reopening hopes started to fade a little bit. And I think that's most likely a result of QE. Yeah. So we looked at QE last week and tried to distinguish the different impacts of it. Primarily, to what degree does QE encourage consumption versus increases in asset prices? And so what we did was we looked at the proportion of Fed balance sheet growth during each of the four QE regimes, QE1, 2, 3, and the current one, and saw what portion of Fed balance sheet growth actually fed through to money supply growth. And what we found is that the current quantitative easing regime has not really translated to consumption, but really that it's fed through mostly to higher asset prices. And I think this makes sense from an economic standpoint when you think about the diminishing returns to credit. So as the Fed has pumped more and more money into the system, a smaller and smaller amount of that has actually fed through to credit extension and consumption. So for every dollar of Fed balance sheet growth during the current QE regime cycle, we found that about 30 cents of it was feeding through to money supply growth and thus likely consumption. Whereas in QE1 back in 2008 to 2010, that was about 96 cents. And QE2 it was more like 75 cents. And what was it during QE3? QE3 was also about 30 cents. So similarly in this lower, you know, marginal utility of credit growth type of regime that we're seeing now. And I make that distinction because the most stressed times for the economy was likely during QE1 and still during QE2 during that slow recovery. But during QE3, there was no longer any lasting like panic. There was no longer subprime mortgages as a story or anything. QE3 was just trying to encourage inflation and higher growth during what we considered a quote-unquote normal time just with lower growth. And it didn't really create any more GDP, but it did create a significantly higher equity market. And we're starting to see similar dynamics play out with this current bout of QE that we're not seeing a big follow-through to consumption, at least not yet, as measured by growth in M1. But we are seeing financial asset prices being influenced higher. Bond prices are at all-time highs, and the stock market, while not higher, is higher than a lot of people expect it to be, and has recovered greatly just since March after a 33% decline. So putting these two factors together, that kind of informs the view we have on the market right now, where we think that risk assets can still perform here in the near term as QE continues to provide upward pressure while we await evidence on the longer-term story to play out, which is the ultimate impact of the coronavirus on the economy. And to that point, we do expect to see another leg lower in risk asset prices. Even if the lows that we've seen already end up being the lows of the cycle, we still wouldn't be surprised to see those levels tested again as stimulus money runs out. And the rationale behind that is the government's coming with the CARES Act that's put in two and a half to three trillion dollars of stimulus so far. And if we look at Q1 GDP at negative 5%, and most estimates for Q2 GDP centering around negative 25% somewhere in there, meaning that GDP growth could be negative 30% in the first half of the year. And numerically, that comes to $3 trillion worth of earnings that isn't going to be coming from the consumer during the first half of the year. And perhaps not coincidentally, that's about the scope of the government response so far. So just using these rough plug figures implies that the government has provided enough stimulus to get the economy through mid to late June, at which point the stimulus money will run out and the economy will have to get up and walk on its own. And that's going to prove very challenging not only because we've talked about the likelihood of intermittent distancing and unsuccessful full reopenings, but also just looking at the impact that the coronavirus has had on people's lives and the, and the way people live their lives. Imagine right now, spontaneously, all government lockdowns are lifted. People are free to do whatever they want. Do we think that the economy is going to return to the way it was prior to the coronavirus? 
Well, yeah, I think that's a good point. It's not just a matter of returning to normal. I think we have to also consider the increased leverage we're taking. But we looked at this a couple of weeks ago and found that as a proportion of total GDP in the economy, about two thirds of that is going to return to some level of normal. And of that two thirds, something like half is likely to incur some element of pent up demand. And you hit on the key point there, Dan. Leverage has increased significantly over the course of the past two months, as we'll talk about in a little bit. So not only does the economy have to go back to normal, but there has to be some level of pent-up demand that we can pay back this increase in debt with future earnings. And it just doesn't look very likely. So in that context, then, we wouldn't be surprised to see a significant increase in downgrade and default rates into the summer months as stimulus runs out, unless, of course, we see more stimulus. And it does seem like the odds of that are increasing. Already, House Democrats are backing another $3 trillion deficit bill. And it's very difficult to try and forecast whether or not there's going to be more stimulus. There probably will be at least some more. The question is, on what type of scale, how many businesses will be saved as a result of future stimulus? And while it will be some, it does feel like Stimulus is becoming increasingly politically unpopular. And at some point in time, especially in an election year, further fiscal stimulus is unlikely to come. Yeah, Dan, you make the key point there that if the economy is not going to support businesses through the end of this pandemic, then if businesses are going to survive, it's going to have to come from some additional government support. And we might not see that type of support until spreads have already widened and financial market volatility has picked up. And even then, it's unclear if We've seen the bulk of government support with the CARES Act or if there's going to be a more substantial deal down the road. Yeah, I agree, Dan. And not just to talk more specifically about some of the leverage increases we're talking about, we've seen record issuance across most fixed income sectors over the past two months. But just to put some numbers on it, what has IG issuance been? How would you characterize demand for that record issuance? Yeah, so it's certainly been a record in the investment grade market. We've had over $600 billion price in the last eight weeks. Now, that's about a normal amount for half of a year. I think if you had $1.2 trillion gross issuance in a year, that's generally considered a fairly strong year in total issuance. And new deals have really performed. So I went back and looked at the experience of September of 2019, in which we had $100 billion issued over six sessions immediately following Labor Day. And I think some listeners might remember that was the strongest such stretch that we had on record to that point. And then at one point on the sixth day of that stretch of heavy issuance, Demand sort of buckled under this weight of supply, and you saw concessions jump up for a day, and then supply settled down as issuers kind of pulled back from the market a little bit. But importantly, there wasn't really a reaction in secondary markets. Spreads didn't widen to any meaningful extent in response to that. And I think that's an important episode to highlight here because it's possible that something like that happens again in the investment-grade market, where supply might continue to test the market. And at some point, you might have a stretch where demand sort of runs out. But even so, I don't think that's likely to change the trajectory of spread markets. And so in the near term, at least into this Memorial Day weekend, I expect issuance to remain strong and demand to welcome that supply. Yeah. And I can say from a SSA market perspective, it's been the same. In the US agency market, we had the largest month of issuance that we have in our data going back to 1990. In March, and then US dollar SSA supply in April was the largest on record as well. And yet spreads have narrowed meaningfully alongside record supply. Even looking at just the primary markets themselves, in late March, early April, we were seeing new issue concessions often in the 15 to 20 basis point range for government agency debt. 
and now it's come into we're seeing with increasing regularity negative new issue concessions, borrowers printing on top of or inside the secondary curve, and some deals even tightening further inside the secondary market curve. So it just seems like the impact of QE is being felt across all asset classes, and particularly in fixed income, as the increase in money supply has continuously gone to financial markets during a period of time where there's heightened uncertainty, people are looking for safe haven assets. And looking across the credit spectrum all the way down to including equities, investment-grade corporates are still towards the upper end of that. So I think that given the amount of money that's pumped in the financial system by the Fed in just the past couple of weeks, we're seeing a safe haven bid across all of fixed income here. Yeah, I agree with that, Dan. And then Moving on to our last topic for today, the Fed started its secondary market corporate credit facility yesterday, buying just ETFs to start. So we're likely to get data from the Fed's H41 release tomorrow on how much they've bought. But we got some additional information about the mechanics of these purchases that were released yesterday alongside the announcement, right? Yeah. So the Fed also made public its agreement with BlackRock, its investment manager agreement that contained a wealth of information that was previously unknown by the market, and particularly regarding the pace of securities. The agreement talked about how the pace will be established and amended periodically by the Fed as a range of percentages of average daily volume in relevant market, and will be tied to an array of measures of market functioning. It's not just be the level of those measures of functioning, but also the rate of change of them, as well as more qualitative indications of broader market health and macroeconomic indicators. That's going to determine how much the Fed buys. I think the key point of that sentence is the Fed is targeting a percentage of average daily volume according to certain metrics. And those metrics are going to include bid-ask spreads, curve shapes, spread levels, things like that, to try and get a gauge of how healthy markets are, and they will ramp up their purchases during times of less functioning markets. And then as markets are functioning better, they'll move down their percentage of daily volume to the lower end of that spectrum. We also found out that the Fed is going to be executing their secondary purchases, I believe, in three phases. Is that right? Yeah. So the first phase, the one that we're in right now, is going to be called the stabilization phase. And that's going to be when purchases are at their highest pace. And like you said, they're going to be a portion of average daily volumes depending on market functioning. Once the Fed feels that market functioning has improved sufficiently, it'll move on to the ongoing monitoring phase. And purchases will continue in this phase, but at a slower rate than during the current phase. Finally, the third phase is the reduction in support phase, and that's when asset purchases will be phased out, expected now by September 30th. So when we get our first data point for Fed volume in the SMCCF, we're going to get that tomorrow afternoon. How should we interpret that? We should look at it as we're in the stabilization phase, which of the three phases in the program, the Fed anticipates stabilization being the highest volume phase. But then looking at it from the spectrum of financial market health, it does feel like financial markets are relatively healthy right now. So maybe we could interpret whatever tomorrow's number as from an average daily volume perspective as being on the low end of their highest potential purchases. So if financial conditions do worsen from here, we could see average daily volume from the Fed pick up, but that would probably be the only scenario. It's also worth noting here The Fed is only buying ETFs, and that's going to remain the case until companies have self-certified that they are compliant with some of the eligibility criteria for participation in the primary and secondary market corporate credit facilities, at which point the Fed will start buying individual bonds. Dan, do we have any guidance as to when the Fed will start buying individual bonds? The only guidance we have at this point is we are waiting on the Fed to release a certification for eligible issuers. So 
issuers who want to have their debt eligible for purchase from the Fed will have to certify eligibility, basically that they're a U.S. non-banking entity and satisfy a number of other criteria. The Fed has not released that certification yet, and so it's probably going to be a matter of a couple of weeks until the Fed is buying individual bonds at this point, right? Yeah. So because of that, we don't know exactly what the Fed's going to be buying yet, but we do know the broad strokes of its eligibility. And when one interesting trend that we've picked up on is that we haven't seen any real price differentiation between debt that's likely to be eligible for Fed purchase and debt that's not likely to be eligible. Yeah, it's interesting. So with the ECB quantitative easing, we saw eligible corporate bonds outperform ineligible bonds ahead of the actual purchases after the announcement was made. And that outperformance actually extended after purchases went on. So bonds that the ECB was going to buy were traded at a premium to bonds that the ECB was not going to buy. And this is called the scarcity channel of quantitative easing. In the US, we haven't seen this. We've actually just seen outperformance of corporate debt across the board. And I think this is likely due to the amount of debt that the Fed has bought, mainly Treasury and MBS debt, and is reflective of the fact that the relatively smaller amount of corporate debt that the Fed's going to buy is not leading to a price differential based on eligibility for the corporate facility, but rather through the portfolio balance channel, the Fed has pushed investors out of safer assets and into riskier ones, namely corporate bonds and corporate spreads have reacted across the board in a sort of homogenous way. Yeah. So this is just further confirmation of the trend we were discussing earlier in the podcast, that the recovery in risk assets seems to be primarily attributable just to QE and investors just buying across the board indiscriminately to the point that a program such as the secondary market corporate facility, which you would expect to have some differentiation in terms of pricing for eligible and non-eligible borrowers, there isn't a noticeable one. It's all been about QE so far. The story in risk assets has been all QE over the course of the past month. And as we look forward, the question is going to be, how is the virus going to play out versus how much more stimulus can we expect? And as we await evidence on one or both of those stories, it's going to likely continue to be this sort of choppy up and down without assets really moving to new valuations, either higher or lower. Thanks for listening to this episode of Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads, and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular 
particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. Themo is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause Bimo or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. Bimo is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and Bimo accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. Bimo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 